News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC coming at you from the borough of Brooklyn on Wednesday. I'm here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello, Harry Siegel. Hey. And we are now nine months out from the primary that's going to decide who the next mayor is. And a lot of parents think that can't come soon enough, given what's happening with the uh, schools, mostly still not reopening, the mayor swearing they're about to, and parents swearing in a very different way as they're trying to get their young children through Zoom sessions, figure out their work schedules, and so on. Chrissy, how are things looking as you see them? Well, I mean... I'm really, I feel for the millions of parents who are trying to figure out September and bracing themselves for a possible October, November, December. You know, you've mentioned this before, but you've used the word or the phrase, you know, lack of imagination, which I think is so, so spot on. The mayor and his his team and his administration and his school's chancellor had a whole summer to think about creative solutions for our various age groups of students and people who have different learning needs. And here we are uh, trying to figure out how we can keep, you know, a five-year-old entertained on a computer or keep buildings clean without resources or communication with teachers and principals and staff and parents and the children. So as we sort of think about the municipal elections being nine months away, What I'm fascinated with is, you know, in 2013, the primary was in September. And this time around in 2021, the primary will be in June. And, you know, that old song, What a Difference a Day Makes. It's like, what a difference three months might make. Because we know that Bill de Blasio was basically almost dead last the entire summer. It wasn't until right after July 31st in Stop and Frisk, where he sort of had an August surprise that sort of carried him into the beginning of September. and, And now he's our 109th mayor. But it'll be fascinating to see how the combination of ranked choice voting and an early primary affect our selection choices and processes and who doesn't get a summer to, you know, make a case. I mean, let's just say we have an incredibly peaceful summer. You know, does that make a difference with someone who's possibly a little more law and order pro-cop, right? Or if we have a particularly violent summer, what does that mean for someone who uh, hasn't necessarily to find a clear position on policing and and what that means for public safety and the economy and all those things. So, yeah, I, I like the idea of having primaries consistently just because it's easier for voters to know when they should participate. But there was something, I mean, in September was frustrating because people are going back to school, myself included, and there's so much going on at the end of the summer. Can you pay attention? But June seems like it's around the corner. <laughs> and I need to hear a lot more from candidates, and I need to hear a lot more about ranked choice voting. And I think so many New Yorkers are going to have voting fatigue post-2020 and whatever happens on January 20th with inauguration of whomever. Protect the word whom, by the way. So I think, you know, we're realistically giving New Yorkers February, March, April, May, and a touch of June to make a really, really important decision for the 110th mayor of New York City. Two words. Mayor Wiener. Mayor Wiener? 
which is yes, where, where we right could on. Been. I mean, if this were June of 2013, Anthony Weiner would be throwing <laughs> something at someone. Where <laughs> <laughs> I was in an endorsement board meeting, and he was, we had these decorative. They weren't decorative bagels, but they were bagels. But no one ate the bagels or the fruit the entire time. They sat there. You could eat them. And Anthony Weiner was the only candidate of all the candidates who came and sat down and was just like, ooh, bagels. And just started ripping a bagel. Then got into a fight with someone on the endorsement board meeting and I thought he was going to throw the bagel. So whenever I see bagels, I always think of Anthony Weiner almost throwing a bagel at someone whilst asking for their support. (laughs) So two other just very quick thoughts on all that. And then we're going to... uh turn over to this interview with Professor Stephen Brumberg with some really interesting historical perspective about the schools. 35 council seats up for grabs out of 51. We'll definitely have a new speaker, and it's going to be really interesting to see what the resurgent left, uh, the DSA left, if you will, how they show up and register in those races. And of course, who turns out to vote, especially now that like the regular Democratic Party seems to have abandon efforts to expand turnout in recent cycles, uh, even as they've been weakened by that. And a mayoral field that, again, nine months out. So this is not a distant future election that so far, I think, has been marked by a real lack of imagination, that I'm just not hearing a ton of consideration about what a deep budget hole we're in, about how the virus has changed the city, about what we're supposed to be on the other end from that. And I think people are weighing low maybe through the uh, presidential election. It's a crowded field and they're considering their positions, but there's not that much time left. And I'd really like to hear some bigger ideas. Of course, all those candidates are very welcome to uh, holler at us mm-hmm. and come on this podcast. Hey, and you know what? A lot of people are welcome to actually declare. How about that? Mm-hmm. Can we just go ahead? Like, you know, as my grandmother used to say, you know, crap or get off the pot. So either you're doing this or you're not, right? File the paperwork so we can actually ask you some serious questions. Because now I think so many people are still floating out there. They don't really have to answer hard questions because it's still speculation as to whether or not they're in or they're out. So it's like, if you're in, get in, right? I don't know if anyone ever grew up in the South, but like you were not allowed to sort of hold the screen door open. It's like either you are in this house or you're out of the house. Like you cannot be in the middle. And I feel like (laughs) we're at that point now. We have a lot of important questions that we need to ask someone who is running for mayor. And so once you have declared, you need to have real answers or possible solutions to those. When people are still on the fence, I, I don't think that they're held to the same pressure and standard. And I don't want to wait until February to start asking these hard questions. We've got to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. We've got to have national and local conversations simultaneously. It's really the future of the next 10 years that we're going to be figuring out in the next nine months in a lot of ways. If people want to be part of that, I want to hear from them now. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird that you say it in those terms because I think that that's so accurate. I mean, to say nothing about the census And these types of decisions that we're making now that'll dictate the next decade. But we have to sort of view this as a a gestation period. We need to make some hard decisions right now. And I think we've seen what happens when we don't consistently put pressure on folks and ask them what they plan to do, not what they have done, and not some sort of vision of a city in a utopia that's 
feasibly not possible with the financial constraints we have. It's like knowing that we're broke, knowing that we have a governor who is just, you know, half Democrat, half Republican, half bully, knowing that, you know, we might have a federal government, even if it is democratically controlled, you know, Democrats always have to dig out of the hole that Republicans have put them in financially. So there are going to be some really hard times. What are your strategies to make sure, as you know, we'll talk about in the upcoming interview with Steve Brumberg, the future of this city and the economic constraints when it comes to not just education, but so many other policy positions really do rest at the shoulders of individuals who don't live within the five boroughs. And with that, let's jump right in. So as the city is working out in-person school, having blown its 180 days of summer homework after school, in-person school was uh, cut short in March, we're joined on Wednesday by Steve Brumberg, who's a professor emeritus at CUNY at the Graduate Center in Brooklyn College of Education, who I hope is going to uh, share some perspective with our listeners about how New York schools are functioning now and how they used to function, I think, in some ways, a little better. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. If I could uh, take everyone back to the founding of the Board of Education, one needs to remember that the city was merged in 1898. The Board of Education wasn't fully merged until 1902. At that time, there were about uh, 400,000 students in New York City schools. That's a massive number, especially for that time in American history. But what's especially interesting about schools 100 or more years ago was that we're really talking about elementary schools. And we're not talking about elementary schools. We're talking about the first five or six grades, shed kindergarten and shed the upper grades of elementary. There were only 11,000 out of 400,000 students who were in high schools at the beginning of the 20th century. The elementary schools, however, were growing literally like Topsy. By the time of the First World War, uh, immediately following it, the schools had grown from 400,000 to over 800,000. It doubled in about 20 years. So when we look at school openings early in the century, we're really talking about uh, New York chaos. Kids were piling up in schools, especially before the First World War, because of the very high levels of immigration to the city. New York City schools at the time of the First World War had approximately 70% of its students who were either immigrant or children of immigrants. They would come to the city, they would register at schools, and the school buildings simply could, keep, uh, could not keep up with the numbers. Many, many schools were on double session. Classes ran to 50, 60, and even more the city was constantly trying to catch up with the numbers. Not only were the numbers increasing, but high schools began to increase as well. It's a, that's another story. Uh, but by the 1920s, high schools had already grown to 154,000 students. Uh, that was an enormous, enormous increase. And the, the physical construction required for this was quite enormous. I'll stop there and simply say that, that uh, chaos is built into the New York City school systems. So in 1920, it's like five and a half million people in New York and 800,000 students. In 2020, we're nearly eight and a half million people 
and it's a million students. So that period, the turn of the uh, 20th century, was this explosive growth. And at that point, there was a real investment, right, in infrastructure for buildings, for housing all these students. There was. However, there was an enormous lag because uh, the city council really didn't want to vote the financial resources to build schools. What was attempted right about the time of the First World War was something known as the Gary Plan. This originated in Gary, Indiana, and it would have totally transformed the nature of schooling in New York City as it had in Gary. Now, Gary was an industrial town, a steel mill town. That also was growing like Topsy, and their response to it was to create all-day schools. The kids would go from morning until late afternoon. They would go on two sessions. One would be an academic session that was heavily geared toward uh, practical learning, and the other half session would be learning practical skills, trades, um, athletics, music, and so on. Starting around 1916, the then mayor of the city, Mitchell, tried to bring that to New York. And many of the school reformers were behind this plan. But a very critical group was not behind the plan. And that was the immigrant population arriving who saw the Gary plan as a way of preparing their children only for worker roles, for work in the factories and not for further academic achievement. The First World War uh, intervened. Mitchell went off. Uh, I think he was killed as a, as a pilot, if my memory serves me correctly, and the plan crashed with him. After the war, it took about three or four years before the city was prepared to finance schools, uh, school construction, and then schools were built at the clip of about one new school every other week. In one year, I think they built 120 schools. Many, many of those schools are still online. Probably a majority of the city schools date from the 20s and into the early 30s. They were really interesting buildings because they were designed to achieve what we're trying to achieve now in the schools, and that is to clear the air in every classroom because their great concern was with airborne diseases tuberculosis in particular, the, the disease of, of, uh, of the slums, of the tenements. And it was designed so that in a given classroom with very high ceilings, very large windows, every classroom had an air register in it. If you look at old school buildings, it looks like they have dozens of chimneys. Well, those uh, only one or two went along with the, the coal-fired furnaces. Most of those were, in fact, part of the air register system. There were motorized fans that pumped air into each classroom. There was a big classroom register, and it was measured. I I won't go into the study, but there were studies of air quality in the classrooms, and they discovered that the air in the classrooms was turned over every one and a half to two minutes, and that the quality of air in the classrooms of those new buildings was superior to any other public space, be it outdoors or indoors in the city. Many architectural innovations were made, especially by the superintendent of school buildings, a a very important man in New York educational history by the name of Snyder, who designed probably hundreds of schools. So just to close the loop there, 
you said that most of the buildings New York uses now come from this era. Yeah. Are they still modern marvels? Are they still well-ventilated as we're trying to get students back in the midst of the coronavirus? Or, or since we stopped constructing new ones, where's this at? No, they're not. Because the fans, the ventilating fans, died years ago. They were never replaced. And the registers can still be seen in many classrooms, although often there'll be a bookcase or something in front of it. My favorite reuse of the uh, register, which was a hole in the, the wall that was roughly two feet by three feet covered by a metal grating. In one classroom in Brooklyn, a teacher had used that as a rabbit hutch, and the class rabbits lived in that space. But those are gone. The windows are problematic. Many schools did, in fact, have new windows installed in the last decade. But many still have the old windows, and they just, those are giant windows. And unless they're maintained, it's hard to open. And of course, you have to open them top and bottom. I remember the days when you had this huge pole with a, a hook on the end so that you could put the hook into a slot in the top of the window so you could pull it down. I don't know that those are used any longer. I think many of the old windows are still just about locked in place. So, Steve, can you give us a picture of what does integration and segregation look like uh, for New York City public schools starting from, you kind of started at the turn of the century, moving to the present, sort of by boroughs or neighborhoods? Were there, were there any particular patterns that you came across in your research? Uh, yes. As they were building schools, they tried to build schools so that they would be ethnically, religiously, linguistically homogeneous, not integrated. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the oldest sections of the city on the Lower East Side, what becomes uh, Little Italy and so on, uh, they literally drew the boundaries so that uh, East European Jewish immigrants who could live across the street from Italian immigrants were sent to separate schools. There was no effort at integrating those. And of course, there was virtually no effort to integrate students by economic class because the schools were in their neighborhoods. You went to the neighborhood school. So the uptown wealthier populations would not have gone to school with the, the downtown populations. The schools were not interested. And here I'm going to try to read you one little thing from a report. By the way, I, there was a school built in 1905 uh, on Houston Street, about as far east as you can go, PS 188. It still exists. There are multiple school organizations there. That school opened with 5,000 plus students in it. They built these giant schools so that they could deal with the, the crush of uh, unschooled populations. Let me see if I could find that piece of paper. Uh, okay, ask me another question while I'm looking. <laughs> um, so I guess it's more of a personal question. How did you get involved in interested uh, intellectually in public schooling? I'm always curious as to how scholars come upon their research designs and research interests. I'm a product of public schools. I was not born nor raised in New York City. I was born and raised on Long Island. My children went to public schools uh, from K through 12. I became interested in the history of the schools back in the 1970s when New York was on the verge of fiscal collapse. 
and the schools were among the first institutions to be drained of resources. I was teaching at the time at Brooklyn College in the bilingual program. I had worked in, in Venezuela and acquired knowledge of Spanish, and somehow or other, I was therefore considered uh, appropriate for bilingual instruction. I was very concerned that the ways in which the city was responding to the new wave of immigration in the 60s and 70s did not seem to accord with at least the myth of the schools at the beginning of the 20th century as a vehicle for upward mobility uh, with adequate resources to educate East European and Southern European immigrant children. And I set off uh, to learn more about this, and I wound up writing a book called Going to America, Going to School, which looks at schooling at the turn of the 20th century. So that was my entree. And of course, what was done in the 70s and 80s was a pale reflection of what had been done earlier. In fact, earlier in the century, they did respond to the way, not because they were interested in integrating the cultures of students, but because they were afraid that if they didn't Americanize their students, you would have these alien populations overwhelming the city. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's the short answer. I have a, I think, a related question there. Going back to what you were saying about the Gary model that almost came to New York, I'm, I'm curious, thinking about uh, vocational schools in my lifetime and how the city moved away from those, where you often had these really effective and useful programs that gave people trades that they could make very good livings off of, elevator repair, things like that. But it seems almost inevitable that when you have these programs, the issue is, and I think you were saying this was the concern of immigrants in the uh, teens and 20s, and I know this was a real concern in the 70s and 80s, that you inevitably end up with segregated programs where certain students, for instance, those with Hispanic last names, are getting pushed into those vocational programs, even if they show real scholastic or classroom aptitude. And so this becomes a, a de facto form of a racialized or ethnicized control that ends up either destroying those programs or, or making them a functional evil. Is that something that there's any way to navigate? It seems like that's a recurring theme in New York City educational history. You're absolutely right. And I found the passage I wanted to read. This is from something called the Committee on School Inquiry that was undertaken 1911 to 1913. It was headed by the, uh, I think his title was Dean of the School of Education at Harvard, and a, a group of high-powered educators came to examine the city system. It, it wound up not having much effect, but it ran to three gigantic volumes. By the way, in volume three, there are well over 100 pages documenting the studies on air quality in New York City schools. And remember, again, that the, the fear of tuberculosis was, was enormous, and this was their response. Here we are dealing with immigrant populations. Um, the school is a chief means by which society seeks to uh, accomplish a great variety of its purposes, to assist its helpless, to correct its delinquents, to improve its dependence, to equalize its opportunities, to preserve its resources, to lift up the lowly races, to amalgamate alien races, 
to preserve its hard-won wealth of culture to perpetuate, and that's, that, that would be Anglo culture, to perpetuate the results of age-long struggles with nature and so on. In the early 20th century, the vocationalization of the school system, which commences around 1910, and I, I have the numbers of vocational high school students, which grows from nothing in 1910, really, to 50,000 in 1938-39, this was seen as helping the downtrodden, the, um, what do they refer to it here as um, alien races, uh, the lowly races. So they weren't concerned with economic, social, or political equality. They wanted to create a productive yeoman who could function well in the American economic environment. So that wasn't an issue for them. But in fact, it does have that effect. But one has to remember that 100 years ago, very, very, very few people went beyond elementary school. In 1913, I just had that number in my head, only about one third of elementary school students went beyond the sixth grade. So high school represented one to two percent and college also about one to two percent because there were private schools and such that would feed into the collegiate system. Today, I think that's radically different, and it does make for a very complex problem. Often in immigrant communities or lower income communities, there is a need to acquire a trade so that you have the income to go forward. And in New York City, the response to that, to a considerable extent, has been the community college system, which I think is really quite wonderful at CUNY. So those who want to terminate at the end of two years with a certificate, a a, a trade, can do so. But you could also go on, if you are ambitious, uh, you can go on to university to get a bachelor's degree. Of course, in the period we're we're talking about, uh, CUNY was free, right? Yes. Yes. But (laughs) it was free until 1976, I think. I was already at CUNY at the time. Early in the century, yes, it was free, but we're talking about both City College and Hunter College. It was still called the normal school then. Had a total enrollment probably of no more than 5,000, the two together. So we were talking about a very, very select group. The city system doesn't grow until the first new edition actually was Brooklyn College in 1930 and then Queens College and then it continues to grow. And now it enrolls, uh, the last I heard, it was something like a quarter of a million. Uh, So it's gigantic. But it's true. The public support of public higher education in general has declined uh, tremendously. Certainly in New York State, it has. So, Steve, before we let you go, I just have a quick question. If you could sit down with the mayor and the school chancellors of the CUNY system and also the New York City public school system, pre-K through 12, knowing what you've already studied about tuberculosis and the evolution of the public school system, what would you tell them and how would you advise them for this moment that they seem woefully <laughs> unprepared for? Uh, it's, it's a wonderful question. I was senior assistant to school chancellor Cortinas in the early 90s. And I was also university director of teacher education and worked with the chancellors of CUNY for a few years. Um, 
what I would say is, unless we could add two more people to that conversation, we're not going anywhere. Uh, we would have to add the governor and the mayor, because mm -hmm. the decisions on the part of those two individuals will um, not only will be, but has been crucial. Uh, City University is a misnomer, really, since the board is controlled by the governor of the state of New York. Mm. Uh, the decisions he makes will have enormous impact. I think that there is a need to understand, which actually was true early in the 20th century, to understand that the schools are part of a larger matrix of institutions, organizations that work with, with young people, and they have to coordinate their efforts. The school is often the place where every problem is offloaded. But the school is not in a position to respond to many, many of the demands placed upon it. But there are other organizations that might do so. Health, for example, now is crucial. And yet, have we really had good coordination between uh, the Department of Health, whatever it may now be called, and the schools? Why did the schools have to go out and find uh, 1,200, I, I forget what the number is, uh, of school nurses? Why could this not have been done in collaboration with public health services? Collaboration is crucial. And like it or not, political leverage is essential. So very, very last thing here. And I, I'm going to read this out loud from uh, Mike Wallace's Greater Gotham, where he's talking about the, the Spanish flu. And the system here stayed open. L.A. shifted to correspondence classes. Attendance plummeted in Chicago. New York sort of saw its way through, which, you know, something de Blasio might have been thinking about as he's tried to do that. So Royal Copeland was the uh, health commissioner at the time. And schools, he reasoned, were often more sanitary than housing, particularly in the slums. New York schools, moreover, boasted a well-established system of health care, monitoring and care. Copeland accordingly kept the schools open and school physicians inspected children every morning and sent six students home. It worked. Few children caught the disease, and they actually had nurses and Department of Health officials following up at families' houses uh, when students were brought home. Uh, it, it, should that be a model for what we're doing now? And, and why does it seem like we're so far removed from that, and the health department, HHS, and, and the schools are just sort of operating on different tracks, or is that wrong? Um, Copeland is an interesting character. He was totally uh, unqualified for the position to which he was assigned. He later becomes a senator, I believe. Uh, there's a very different take on this in John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, which is really a marvelous, marvelous study of the period. And uh, the lessons that were learned but were not applied, well, he, this was written in 2005, but those lessons have not been applied now. Uh, Copeland responded to the demands of the then mayor, and the mayor didn't want the schools closed he did not necessarily move forward on the basis of scientific knowledge and evidence. It turned out probably to be the right thing to do. I don't presume to know what the right thing to do now is. It, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's above my pay grade in, in this sense. Uh, but I think that when politics and the sciences are at loggerheads, as certainly is the case in this country today, we wind up with non-decision, and non-decision is probably the worst of all alternatives. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining us. I hope you'll come back again. 
maybe even in a saner time in New York and, uh, and, and take us through more of this history. So we really appreciate it. Yes. Uh, not, not at all. Uh, if it's too much saner, I won't know I'm in New York. So. <laughs> F-A-Q. You've been listening to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer. My co-host is Harry Siegel. We want to thank Professor Emeritus Steve Brumberg, formerly of CUNY Grad Center and Brooklyn College, for joining us today. As always, we want to thank our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara, our brilliant producer who mixes, masters, chops, edits, keeps us on track, all those good things. Normally, we record at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. This week, we come to you from the great borough of Brooklyn. Have a great week. Be safe. Wear a mask. McSilver. I was getting there, Harry Siegel. Oh, I'm sorry. I was taking a pause. <laughs> I needed to breathe. Adam, do I start from I'm the sorry. beginning or do I no, just no, add no. in McSilver? Adam, have you left us? I think you can keep going. Because you <laughs> Harry, damn you! Take it from the top, Chrissy. <laughs>